Hello, this is Daryl Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is Lesson 16 of our study of the Gospel of John. We're at Chapter 15, and we begin with verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made complete. Jesus' instructions in this chapter and the next take place while Jesus and the disciples are leaving the upper room where the Last Supper has taken place uh, to head toward the Garden of Gethsemane where they will be when Jesus is arrested. This chapter and the next are Jesus' final words to the disciples before the cross. We will see a lot of repetition as Jesus drives home the truths and commandments he wants them to follow. We can almost hear the urgency in Jesus' voice as they make their way toward what will be a mystifying crisis for the disciples when Jesus is arrested. Jesus turns to another figure of speech, comparing himself to a vine, to provide direction for them once he is no longer with them physically. They would have understood why a vine or a vineyard was a good metaphor. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the vine or vineyard of God. This idea was so strong that a vine was the emblem on the coins of the Jews during the times of the Maccabees. On the temple, there was a prominent golden vine. Wealthy Jews would consider it an honor to give enough gold to the temple treasury for a bunch of grapes, or even a single gold grape, to be placed on the vine. It was the symbol of the nation of Israel, and it encapsulated the Jewish belief that Israel was the vine of God. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is the true vine. Simply being Jewish is not enough to save you or to ensure you are in a right relationship with God. You must stay connected to the Father through the true vine, Jesus. This is similar to the metaphor he used of being the gatekeeper of the sheep. It was a concept most of the Jews were unwilling to accept, but he is telling his disciples they must understand this. Jesus continues on with the vine metaphor by pointing out that the Father is the vine grower. And like a good vine grower, he prunes the branches of the vine so it will bear more fruit. The purpose of the vine is to produce fruit. So Jesus is saying he expects his followers, the branches, to produce fruit. How do we produce fruit? By living the life that Jesus taught us to live, as he described in the Sermon on the Mount, 
by obeying his commandments, chief among them being that we love one another. In short, Jesus wants us to practice the Christian life in much the same way a doctor practices medicine or a lawyer practices law. In both professions, they study to learn medicine or law and then live out what they have learned with their patients or clients. They don't study to learn their craft and then ignore what they have learned as they practice their profession. In fact, to keep their license, which they must have to continue to practice, they must give sound advice based upon what they have learned. Likewise, as Christians, we must not only learn what Jesus expects of us, we must accept it and live it day by day. We must produce the fruit of the Christian life. That may cause us at times to be out of step with the culture around us or cause us to be the targets of criticism from those who disagree with us. That can be painful, but our loyalty is to Jesus, and it's to him we must answer. Jesus also tells us how to bear fruit. We must abide in him just as he abides in the Father. Jesus said he only does what he sees the Father doing, and only says what the Father tells him to say. Likewise, we must abide in Jesus by being obedient, so that we remain within his will. He understands we won't do this perfectly, but he expects us to commit ourselves to abiding in him. His warning to us is that if we don't commit to abiding in him, we will produce no fruit and become like a useless branch that is pruned. This is not given as a threat to us. It's a loving admonition from our Savior who knows what is best for us and who is willing to make the ultimate sacrifice so we could abide in him. And he tells us again that if we obey his commandments, we will abide in him. Moreover, when we do this, we will bring glory to the Father, which brings Jesus joy, and his joy will be in us. Let's continue on now with verses 12 through 17 of chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands, so that you may love one another." In verse 12, Jesus repeats the commandment he has given them earlier. They must love one another as he has loved them. He points out that he loves them by laying down his life for them, and there's no greater love than this. It's important that we understand what Jesus means by this. We tend to associate love with strong feelings for someone, such as a significant other, family, or good friends. The Greek language in which the New Testament was written had a number of different words for love. Eros was the Greek word for romantic or sexual love. Philia is the Greek word for warm affection between true friends. Storge was the word for family love, such as the love of a child for a parent or parent for child. Significantly, none of these words is used when Jesus tells us to love one another. The word used is agape, which denotes benevolence or goodwill. 
We will not necessarily have the same feelings for others as we have for family or close friends, but we must always treat each other with benevolence and goodwill and be ready to serve each other. In fact, Jesus had just demonstrated this by washing his disciples' feet only an hour or so previously. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus points out that they did not choose him, he chose them. This is something we must always keep in mind. Jesus is the one who has pursued us. To the extent we have pursued him, it is only in response to his taking the first step toward us. And for all of us who accept him, he calls us friends. Jesus tells his disciples he no longer calls them servants because the master doesn't always confide in servants. Yet he has made known to them all the Father has told him, just as one would with a close friend. He has chosen them, and us, to be friends so that we will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Furthermore, the Father will enable us to bear fruit by empowering us to do his will. In fact, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. These are words Jesus has spoken to them previously, but he is reminding them of these things now, as time is short. Continuing on now with verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. To this point, most of Jesus' words have been encouraging. He wants them to bear fruit, and if they abide in him by obeying him, they will bear fruit. Beginning in verse 18, however, Jesus warns them of what lies ahead. He does this not to scare them, but to warn them of what they would experience so they wouldn't be discouraged when it happened. He reminds them of something he has told them before. The world hated Jesus, and therefore the world will hate them. Servants are not greater than their master, and they will be treated similarly to their master. If they persecuted him, they will persecute his followers. He goes on to say the persecutors would have no sin if they acted out of ignorance. But he has taught and performed works which were unmistakably from God. Yet they did not believe and even hated him for what he said and did. Recall that it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead that finally tipped the Sanhedrin court into action to get rid of Jesus. Before that, the Jews were in an uproar because Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath and caused the lame to walk on a Sabbath. He points out this fulfills prophecy from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 25, verse 19, which says, They hated me without a cause. The pro- 
prophecy of Jesus that they will be persecuted played out in brutal fashion under the Roman government. The Romans viewed Christians as disloyal citizens. This view rose out of the development of emperor worship. Although the initial emperors of Rome discouraged being treated as a divine being, over time the Roman Empire expanded and needed a unifying force to hold it together. The idea of treating the emperor as divine actually arose from the people rather than being forced upon them. They did this out of a sense of gratitude for the peace and prosperity Rome brought to the world. It may be hard for us to imagine today, but Rome did bring more peace and prosperity to the world than had existed previously. So there eventually came a day when every inhabitant of the empire was required once a year to burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of Caesar to show his loyalty to Rome and would receive a certificate saying he had done so. He would then have to say, Caesar is Lord. Thereafter, he could go worship any god he desired, so long as it didn't affect public decency or order. But the Christians refused to engage in Caesar worship or call him Lord. The Jews also refused, but as Christianity spread among the Gentiles, their refusal became a much larger problem, and many Christians were punished for the crime of being a Christian. There's a lesson for us in the situation Christ referred to when he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Although we do not experience persecution in this country in the way they did in New Testament times, that is not true in many parts of the world. More Christians are being killed worldwide today than at any other point in history. Furthermore, even in this country, the culture of the world is often having more influence on the church than the church is on the culture. Whenever we must evaluate any issue we face, our first thought must be, what does God have to say about this? For most issues, there will be scriptures that can guide us. For those issues on which there is no clear teaching, we must pray for guidance from the Holy Spirit while looking at any scriptures that might bear on the issue. The fact that some pain may accompany whatever we decide is no basis upon which to decide to ignore what God has to say. Many Christians went to their death rather than say, Caesar is Lord. We continue now with verses 26 and 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. In these verses, Jesus turns again to speak of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. If anyone ever needed comfort, Jesus and his disciples do at this moment. But Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit comes not just to be our Comforter, but also as an advocate who will testify on behalf of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus says, you also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, first, Jesus is referring to the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who convicts us that what we hear in sermons and read in scriptures and books about Jesus is true. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings us to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. It's the Holy Spirit within us who moves us to respond to Jesus. If you have been moved by what we've learned about Jesus during the course of our study of the Gospel of John, it's the witness of the Holy Spirit who has been whispering to you that all we have studied about Jesus is true, 
and that you are loved by God more than you can even imagine. Second, Jesus tells his disciples and us, they must witness about him. How do we do this? For some people, the idea of being a witness for Jesus is scary. They feel they are not competent to witness or that they are not worthy of being a witness. But we need not be afraid to witness about Jesus. Remember, a witness is one who speaks about what he or she knows or has experienced. Jesus does not expect everyone to testify about the theology of God or Jesus. He expects us to testify about how God has dealt graciously with us. There is nothing more powerful than a believer saying, This is what Christ has done for me, and I know it was him who did it. Christian witness comes from the inner conviction that God is present in our lives and will bring us through all of the trials and tribulations of life. When we testify to this through the way we live and through the simple stories of how God has dealt graciously with us, it's powerful. And by doing so, we are being obedient to what Jesus asks of us. I'll give you an example of testimony from my own life. When I was going through pilot training at Moody Air Force Base in South Georgia, I got behind my classmates because the Air Force wouldn't let me fly until they made sure the concussions I got playing football had no lingering effects that might medically disqualify me from becoming a pilot. Once I was cleared to begin flying, I had to catch up with my classmates. And in the process, my flight instructor didn't have me practice emergency single-engine landings as much as I probably should have. When my first check ride came along, the first thing my check ride instructor did after takeoff was pull one of the two throttles back to idle and say, You have just lost an engine. Land the airplane. Well, I really messed up the single-engine landing to the extent it was graded unsatisfactory. We then started our climb out to finish the rest of the check flight. But as we did, an engine fire warning light came on, indicating we had an engine fire. There were no other indications that we actually had a fire, but because the engine fire warning light was on, we had to abort the mission. And actually, there was no fire. So the flight didn't count as my check ride. During the debriefing, though, the check ride instructor made it quite clear that had we finished the flight, I would have received an unsatisfactory grade, in effect an F, due to screwing up the single-engine landing. My regular instructor then took me up on several flights to practice single-engine landings. A week later, I went up for my check ride again and got the highest grade in my class. I went on to have the highest flying grades in my class for the entire program, which I would not have had if my first check ride had been a failing grade. Our flying assignment options after pilot training were based on our class standing. Without the F on my first check ride, I was among the top overall students in my class and had a wide choice as to my assignment. Due to the fire warning light coming on, I was high enough in my class to get a coveted instructor pilot assignment at Moody Air Force Base where I went through pilot training. I was there as an instructor when I met Mary, my wife, which eventually led me to being here with you today. Had the fire warning light not come on, I am convinced I would not be here with you today. My life would have taken an entirely different direction and would have turned out quite differently. 
Some would say that was just a coincidence, one of the vagaries of life no one can explain. However, a fire warning light coming on without there being an actual fire was a rare event. I never heard of another such episode during my flying career, although it probably happened somewhere. I am convinced it was the hand of God that turned on the fire warning light at exactly the right time to keep my life going in the direction the Father wanted it to go. And I'm willing to testify about that to anyone who will listen. Can I present tangible evidence that it was God who brought this about? No, but neither can anyone else present evidence God was not involved. It's somewhat similar to the episode in Matthew chapter 17, verse 27, where Jesus tells Peter to go catch a fish in which he will find a coin which Peter should use to pay their temple tax. It's not necessarily a miracle to find a fish with a coin in its mouth, but it is a miracle when the fish with a coin in its mouth is exactly where Jesus said it would be at a particular time. Likewise, the fire warning light coming on during a flight is not a miracle. But for that fire warning light to come on at exactly the time I needed it, I consider that a miracle. The hand of God intervening in my life. I'm sure most of you have stories about how God has interviewed, excuse me, has intervened in your life in ways that are remarkable. The stories don't have to be about miracles. It's enough for you to tell someone how God has been gracious to you. That's all Jesus asks of you when you testify for him. We'll continue on next week with chapter 16.